Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Very interesting book. Very tough book to get through. Um, but it's, it's good. It's, a, you know, it's history and we can learn from it. <clears throat> Malachi is the last, right before Matthew is Malachi. So if you find Matthew, make a left. Any one of the Gospels, make a left. So Malachi chapter 2. What is it, four, four chapters or five? Four? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make a left. No, it should be four. Four or five, I didn't stuff together. You got one of them new and improved Bibles, huh, bro? All right, everybody stay focused. Again, got a lot of people, so I don't want you guys to, to get too distracted. We get one group of conversation, and that's going to carry into another. Uh, there's a, there's a power-punching uh, set of verses here that we want to get through, but I want to give you an introduction, okay? Understand that the nation of Israel, as we read through the book of Malachi, is at the end of their history as it relates to being in the fold of God, being the sheep of God, um, there, this is the last book in the canon, right? You got, as I've been telling you all, as we've been going through Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, written in between um, Ezra chapter 6 and 7. So you got those three books, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, and Malachi are the last four books that close out the Old Testament canon. After that closes out, you have 400 years of no prophet until John the Baptist, Okay. Now, we can look back, and hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, we can look at what it looks like for a nation to come to an end. America is right where Malachi chapter 2, 3, 4 is. Okay? Right now in history, you're living in a country that was founded on God, that was set apart for God, and began... To dismantle 1963 and 64. It started in 1928, 29, 30 with the scope trials. I'm not going to give you bore you with too much history, but if you know anything about the scope trials, basically it was evolution versus creationism. The argument for creationism won, but the public sentiment was, man, that evolution guy killed that argument, and the tide began to shift in America. In 1963 and 64, I think, no, 1962 and 63, every barometer for the health of a nation, there's like 150 things that you can look at to be able to say, man, this is, this is a, a strong nation. This is a healthy nation. This is a vibrant nation. This is a growing nation. This is vitality for the nation. There's, there's these barometers that you can look at. 1962 and 1963, America started declining, and we've been in a free fall ever since. What happened in 1962 and 63? We kicked prayer out of public school, and we kicked the Bible out of public school in those two years. And we've been in a free fall ever since. And right now, you and I are living in a nation that at one time was a nation, one nation under God. It's printed on our currency, and we are no longer that one nation under God. And so it's just, I find it interesting as 
I study and I kind of see these things and I'm looking at history. I know the history of Israel. Why? Because it's recorded for me in the Bible. And so as I look at it and study it, and now I'm looking at America, I'm like, ah, oh, Lord. For the first time in my walk with you, I can see why America is not included in the last days. Because we've reached the point of no return. Can things turn around? Only if there's a great awakening. A great awakening is believer, unbelievers come to faith in God. If there's a revival, that revival can lead to a great awakening. A revival is the church is revived. Both of them need to happen. But we are in the minority. Okay? So, we're going to heaven? That sounds like doom and gloom? And you're like, great, I'm going to hell. I live in America. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, the beauty of, of God's grace and the wonder of what God wants to do, I pray we would never lose sight of what it means to experience God's grace. The greatest, after salvation, I mentioned this, I think, in first service on Sunday. I don't think I mentioned it in second service. The greatest um, response to God's grace is salvation. You're saved by grace, right? Through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But as a Christian, God continues to, to bring his grace to us. So now as a Christian, you and my application of grace in our lives is the ability to repent. When we stop repenting, God will withhold his grace from us because the Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it takes humility to, hum to repent, doesn't it? You have to admit you're wrong. When you, even when you thought you were right. Lord, I thought I was right. Sorry. That's repentance. It's turning away. So never get tired of confessing. Never get tired of repenting because that's your response to God's grace and he gives you more grace when you do that. But when you think you've got it figured out, when you think that you don't need God, when you begin to pull away from God, this is what we're seeing here in Malachi. Okay, so this is exactly you can see it. Remember last week in the introduction of Malachi, I did chapter one, but I mentioned out of the 55 verses, 40, 53 verses, 48 of them are God speaking. No other book has more words out of the mouth of God. And this chapter right here, if it wasn't God speaking, I would be like, oh, this is a, this is a tough chapter. This is God speaking. You want to know how God looks at the condition of his kids who are deceived? This is it right here. Deception is big. And when you are deceived over a long period of time and you're not responding to God's grace by repenting, then this is where you end up. Now, Will we ever be there? I mean, this is years. This is 1,500 years of history. So we're not looking at, oh, man, last week I didn't even repent for that thing. Oh, my gosh, God's going to kick me out. No, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is with you, and, and God will never leave you. God will never forsake you, okay? This is a history of God's kids over 1,500 years, okay? Understand, that's a long time, right? How long has America been alive? A little more than 200 years. 1776, do the math. We began as a nation in 1776, July 4th, right? That's our birthday. So we're a, we're a very short-lived, powerful group of people. And, you know, America, stick your chest out. America, I'm an American. 
But boy, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach, the book of Proverbs says. And so we have God's favor. We're a great country for one reason, God's favor. And when we begin to kick God out and kick God out and kick God out, God has to honor our wishes because he will not force his love upon us. He wants to love us. He has loved us. He will continue to love us, but he won't love us in stubborn rebellion. He'll, turn, he'll let us go. Okay? So that's what we're going to kind of see as we begin to just see the things on the horizon. And you're seeing it. You've been seeing it for the last, since the 80s. You've been, I mean, like I said, 1963 and 64, 62 and 63. Okay? So we left off in chapter one where God was beginning to let, the first thing out of his mouth was, I have loved you. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have loved less or hated. And then he tells us why he loved Jacob because from the foundations of the world, God was able to pick one and reject the other. And was he right? Yeah, when we look at the history of who Esau was, Esau had no concern for his birthright, for anything spiritual. He gave up his birthright, which is something that was so precious in the sight of God, for a bowl of what? Porridge or soup or whatever it was? Menudo, probably? <laughs> whatever it was from stew. Um, but man, that's, that's selling out your birthright pretty cheap. The blessing of God upon your life, pretty cheap, okay? So, and then he goes into the priests, and he mentions the priests. Now, the priests are leaders. Are we all leaders in this room as Christians? Absolutely. Are we all priests? Yes, we are. We are all priests. Are we all kings? Yes, we are. I didn't even know this. I was like, I go in the office today and I'm like talking to Deborah, one of the ladies. She's all Bible scholar girl. And I'm like, Deborah, are we? I know we're kings because that I just taught Second Peter and it says we're a royal priesthood. So I know that we're a priest, we're a priesthood, and we have, what is a priest? A priest intercedes on behalf of people, and they speak to God, and then they speak to God about people. So, you know, you're, you're, that's all a priest is, right? Somebody goes in between, and you're, you're praying for people, aren't you, to God? And, you, and God is talking to you about people. And so, you know, that's a priest, right? That's the, the role, if you will, of a priest, right? An intercessory person. So, yes, we're priests. And I was like, yeah, but are we kings? And she's like, no, I don't think there's a scripture. She goes, but I don't know. I got my computer right here. I go, you know, you ask Google the right question. It'll spit out an answer. Somebody turn in your Bibles to Revelation for me and read me verse 6. Turn in your Bibles to, hold your place, just one of you. Revelation 1, 6. I love Revelation. Don't ever be scared of Revelation. It's the only book that guarantees that God will bless you if you read it and hear it. Revelation 1 6. You might have skipped the line. Read it, Lorraine. Chapter 1, verse 6. There it is. Stop there. And he has made us kings and priests. So we are ruling with God, and we are intercessory people. Just in a nutshell, priests, okay? So when we read that God is speaking to priests here, something had gone wrong with the leadership. You and I are leaders. God wants to use you as a vehicle, as a conduit, as a vessel. 
you're a pot. And when you're cracked, the light that shines in you is able to shine through. So the pot doesn't have a lot of value, but the light inside of it has ultimate supreme value. And it's through the cracking of the pot that the light shines through. So don't ever be afraid of being broken. God wants to break us, to use us. And unfortunately, that's just, in this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. All who set out to live godly in this world will suffer persecution. Those are precious promises, okay? So the priests here had distanced themselves from God. In the last chapter, they were offering to God not their first fruits, remember? They were offering busted lambs, jacked up pigeons, maimed animals, and saying, here you go, God, I don't really need this. And they would sacrifice that on the altar, and God is like, if you offered that to your governor, he wouldn't even receive it. Don't you know that I am the king, and that's what you give me? I don't want your actions separated from your heart. And that's what they did. The priests had began to go through the motions of their lives without having their hearts connected. And so with God, it's an all or nothing proposition. God doesn't want a piece of you. God doesn't want moments of you. God wants all of you because he bought you and he owns you. Did he buy you with anything corruptible? No, he bought you with his incorruptible blood, right? He rescued you out of the slave market. You were a slave to sin. And so we need to keep short accounts with God. All of us are going to make mistakes. All of us are going to mess up. And you don't have to worry about being perfect. That weight off of your shoulders, that burden that you carry, well, I'm not perfect. Well, you're in good company because you're at a church with imperfect people. Yay! How's your church? We're imperfect. Yay! All of us, every single one of us. When you try to be perfect, all you get is a yo-yo walk with God, and you're going to be up one day and down, because you're going to have good days. I killed it today. Woo! Prayed this morning, read my Bible, great devotion. God confirmed it on the bus stop. I saw the sign. It said the same word that was in my default. Woo! Killing it today. And then the next day, you're going to ruin it. So that'll be a yo-yo experience with God. Don't do that, Okay. So be careful not to be disconnected with what you do. Make sure that you remain attached to what God is doing in your life. No greater voice in your life than God. Okay? I am a pastor, teacher, equipping you as the minister for the work of the ministry. Where are the ministers? They're all right here. These are all the ministers. We're looking at them for the work of the ministry. How? God wants to reach the world through the ministers, okay? So hopefully you're developing relationships with people because a lot of people don't want to go to church, right? A lot of people just don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. I don't know what it's like, but I don't, it doesn't look good on TV. I just, I don't know. There's something about it. I don't want to go. But they'll have a conversation with you. Why? Because you've built a relationship. You've developed trust. They look at your life and they're like, yeah, you know what? There's something about them. It's a little different. I don't know what it is exactly. So take advantage of that. You're being equipped for the ministry. So we left off on the priest where God said they lacked the fear of the Lord, the reverence for God. They didn't hold him in high esteem. They treated him like a common thing. 
There's this idea that, you know, above all the relationships that we have with God, father, child, husband, wife, because God is our um, groom, right? We are the bride of Christ and all these relationships. You know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. But be careful when you get flippant or um, cavalier, cavalier with your relationship with God. Yeah, man, Jesus is the mother effing dude, man. Like, what, 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 what? Really? You better hold God in his rightful place. Don't disrespect God. That's God. And he may be friendly towards you and there may be a camaraderie there. Man, you know, I just, I don't know, when I talk to Jesus, I just feel comfortable. Cool. Nothing wrong with that. But don't forget who you're talking to. Don't ever forget that this is the creator of the universe. Where in the book of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. Hold him in his rightful place. Keep him in high esteem. Recognize that he is worthy of our reverence. If nothing else in this world is worthy of our reverence and our fear, God is worthy of it. And that's what they had lost. So let's take a look at it. Malachi chapter two. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to glorify, uh, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. Whoa. I've been reading this all week. Over and over and over. And I've been reading it in various versions, trying to soften it, trying to, light, trying to lighten it up. And I was like, oh, wow. God's going to take doo-doo and put it on their face. The doo-doo from these whack sacrifices that they're offering to God because he's sick of it. And how dare you do that? And God's saying, I will take the very refuse from them busted sacrifices that you're offering to me and I'm going to spread it on your face. I I don't know how to interpret that outside of ouch. Notice he says twice in verse two, he says, and if you will not take it to heart, and then he says it again in verse uh, two at the end, because you did not take it to heart. They're inside wasn't connected to their actions. They were going through the motions. They were basically giving God lip service. All right, all right, whatever, whatever, whatever you require. Yeah, whatever, we'll do it, we'll do it. And they weren't connected inside. Imagine just if you had a relationship with somebody who said they loved you and it was that callous, that distant, that wouldn't feel very passionate, would it? That wouldn't feel very huh, man, I don't, I'm not feeling the connection. Yeah, you're doing all the right things, but I want to feel a connection. I want your heart into what you're doing. If you're going to sacrifice for me, if you're going to offer me something as a gift out of obedience, wow, then your expression of love for me, can, can you at least connect the two? Because I'm just getting, I'm just getting really motion with no emotion. I'm just getting works, but your heart's disconnected. God, God's, I, don't, I don't deserve that, God's saying. I, I give you all of me, and I want all of you. 
So they had gotten to that place where they were disconnected. Verse 5, my covenant was with him, speaking of Levi, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. So when the priesthood started, man, it was, it was taken off. It was great. Levi and the descendants of Levi and Aaron, man, they were killing it. It was a good thing. Their hearts were connected to the things that they were doing. Their actions and their emotions or their heart or the inside of them were one and the same, and they meant what they were doing. Remember David, elevated above all others as what? A man after God's own heart. So what did that mean? A man after God's own heart. Somebody who cared so much about what the Lord cared about. Do you need a Bible? What do you need, buddy? You can take it, buddy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No problem. You have a great evening. Be careful. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned away, many away from in, iniquity. So notice what having the heart and the actions connected, God was able to use Levi. God was able to use the priesthood. God was able to use individuals who weren't just going through the motions. As opposed to people going through the motions, now God can't even use those people. Because God doesn't want to send a wrong message. And, and don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. But God cares how we do what we do. He cares that we're, we're in it for the right reasons. And our motives are something that's very important to God. And so even as we get into the next chapter about giving money, he's like, I want you to give your tithes to, for the right reasons. Bring all of the tithe into the storehouse. And see if I don't pour open the windows of heaven for you. Test me. Try me in this, God says. And so all of the things that we do, not some of the things, but all of the things we do, are we doing them with the right motive, with the right heart? Um, verse 7 says, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. So now they were picking and choosing which commandments in the laws they would obey. Guys, we don't have that right. We don't have a right to pick and choose what we're going to obey. If God says it, then he wants us to walk in obedience to it. And that is what faith is. And without faith, the Bible declares in Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God. Faith says, I take God at his word and I trust him enough to know that I have to obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how we demonstrate our love for God. Okay, so very important that we see. Now he goes on in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously? This word treacherously is going to come up over and over. Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. 
By profaning the covenant of the fathers, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughters of a foreign god. So now he's going to get into the fact that the priests would marry the wife of their youth, be with them for a period of time, see some young honey coming on the horizon, kick the wife to the curb, and then marry these young honeys. And God is saying, you're messing up my institution. You're ruining the picture that I wanted to create for the world of who I am through this covenant that I made, this covenant that I gave you. This idea of marriage, whose, whose idea was it? Where did it come from? God. It was God's, right? He saw Adam alone, and he said, hey, this isn't a good thing. First time in all of the Bible, in creation, right, that you see it's good, first day is good, second day is good, second day, third day is good, right? Everything is good, good, very good, some, some uh, verses, right? Very good, it's good, and then you get to the first time in the Bible where it says it was not good, it is not good that man should be alone, but I'm going to make him a helper comparable to him. I'm going to bring Eve to him. I'm going to put him to sleep, and I'm going to bring his helpmate to him. And that was God's holy covenant, holy institution of how he wanted the world to be able to run. Be fruitful and multiply is the first commandment in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Rule over it. I've given the animals fear of man. So you have dominion, mutual dominion, Adam and Eve. They were equals. Mutual dominion because of the fall. Now there's sub submission. That, that's part of the curse. What's your question? Mm -hmm. Not upset. Uh, he definitely upset with the results of sin, but God was upset more with that. Um, God only asked questions for impartation, never for information. Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? God knew where Adam was, right? Not information, impartation. He wanted to impart a truth to Adam. So he's asking the question to draw him closer, to bring him back to God is what he was doing. Anyways, um, what verse? 11? Judah 12. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed, verse 11 says, in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. So yeah, I did read that. Uh, verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware. Those two words, man, they just boom, jumped off the page as I'm reading all this week. Awake and aware. Physically, you can see it in your heart. You know it's true. There's a connection there that is undeniable. You're doing this, and at the same time, <coughs> you are fully aware. This isn't something that, this is, okay, deception is bad, right? Anybody ever been deceived? That's horrible, right? You're deceived? Darn! I remember I bought these necklaces, these gold necklaces, and darn, they turned green on my chest. Darn, I thought they were real gold. I should have saw it coming because he had the trench coat and he opened it up. No, it wasn't like that. It was almost like it should have been like that. It was just I was busted, right? But deception, ah, oh, took me, got me, duh, right? But the worst deception of all, self-deception, to be self-deceived, to be cooperating with deception. Nothing worse than that. Because who's going to convince you? 
You've convinced yourself of something. So deception's bad. These guys were self They were awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? Verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. Not their tears, the tears of their wife. They had taken these young honeys, married them. So they're offering offerings on the, on the altar, right? That same altar that their wives are coming to, that they kick to the curb, and now they have no means of living, and they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, this is my condition. Ain't nobody going to marry me in this stage. But my husband kicked me. My priest husband kicked me to the curb. So those tears are going to God with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Why would God receive from the altar what you're offering if the same exact thing is taking place? Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? I love this. Why did God put us together? He seeks godly offspring. He wants his kids back. Therefore, take heart to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I will say this. Some people think God hates divorce for multiple reasons. It ruins the covenant. It ruins the promise. It ruins the vow that we took, right? And that's all horrible. But what leads to divorce? Think about the pain that leads to divorce. If somebody's getting divorced. That wasn't good, right? Something had to happen, right? Something was really wrong. And so in that, I think there's some people, you know, I, I, I just see people married, you know, a lot of years, a lot of years, a lot of years, but miserable in that marriage. God hates the misery. I don't know if he hates it as much as divorce, but how about we humble ourselves and actually try to be what God would have us to be to our spouses. Yeah, I've been married X amount of years, says the proud man, while he treats his wife horrendous. Pride just to stay married? How about you repent and ask God to actually give you the strength to love the wife of your youth with his love? Wouldn't God be so much more pleased with that? As much as he hates divorce, if you're going to stay married... <coughs> Doesn't he want that marriage thriving? So whatever mistakes have been made, we can put those behind us. At some point, we have to say, I want to honor you, Lord. I want to honor you in this. I want to give you what you deserve because I made a promise to you. I made a covenant in your presence. And so I think as much as God says he hates divorce, what leads up to, us, up to it can be, man, years and years and years and years of literally hell on earth. How about we repent of that and begin to ask God to give us grace for one another? And I think that's powerful in our day and age. So God will never um, tell someone to divorce, but there are grounds in the Bible for divorce, abandonment, adultery. In the Old Testament, it was uh, adultery, according to Deuteronomy. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 includes abandonment. Um, obviously, death of a spouse allows you the freedom to remarry. Uh, so those are, if you will, the three reasons, I guess, for, for remarriage. 
Um, and God has a way of, you know, wherever you find yourself right now is the day is the place that you should be faithful with and ask the Lord to give you what uh, you need for that moment. As we go on, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Is that not self-deception right there? You're saying, priests, that when people do evil, it's good in the sight of the Lord and he will delight in them? Or where is the God of justice? Dude, I'm doing this. I'm getting away with it. No lightning bolt has come out of the sky and, and zapped me. No hole has opened up and swallowed me. My car runs down the street and it doesn't crash. <laughs> Where's the God of justice? I'm getting away with this. Are you? Are you nation of Israel? In hindsight, we can look back. Is the nation of Israel getting away with this? The, is, the nation of Israel is about to have their Messiah come on the scene. And they're going to miss him. And God is going to say, done, nation of Israel. I'm done with you. In fact, I'm going to blind you. God would blind them for 2,000 years. And he will restore them in the tribulation. They're going to have to go through some serious stuff to be restored back to God. And in, in Romans chapter 10, he uses the nation of Israel to speak to us Gentiles. Hey, Gentile. Be careful, because if I did this to Israel, I can do it to you as well. Again, not popular messages. You know, we love the love. We love the, 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 the grace. We love the good stuff. But God says what he means, and he means what he says. And it would be to our advantage to understand that when we walk by faith, we take God at his word, and we trust him. We trust him. And the evidence of that is seen in our lives. 